0: from the duck south studios in oxford mississippi we're mass communicating it's a bold strategy cotton let's see if it pays off for them <laughs> this is the end of the line podcast powered by ducksouth.com i gave it a uh, a 10 a 10 sweep the leg you have a problem with that this is... and now Here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring, Josh Webb, Jake LaTondres, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Side Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me on the other end of the line, Ramsey Russell. Ramsey, I am sorry that I was not available to do the the episode with you and Ira the other day. I was right in the middle of my truck. Alarm is beeping, telling me to put my seatbelt on, but... I was right in the middle of my daughter's showing at the state fair, which I appreciate the message that you you sent me with the picture. But uh like I said, I
1: apologize for not being there with y'all. Gee, don't worry about it, Rocky. Y'all y'all work hard. I've always said I I believe this man, children spell love T I M E and I just it, see the pictures of you and your you and your family. Your daughter won those awards. And uh, the facial expression of the youngest and, and and her, it just I don't know, Rocky. It it I it made me smile on the inside and the out just to see that picture. I was proud of your whole family, man, to do something like that. So, man, me and me and me and I are meeting. I was, I was always a pleasure to talk to me and him getting to meet. Uh, we were happy to do it, you know. And I'm 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 really glad y'all did well. And that uh, that's a that's a big commitment of time y'all do, isn't it?
0: Oh man it's unreal. People can't believe that we will you know, with these goats with the babies, we'll end up selling the babies for uh just because of this is the same kind of thing as, as titling a dog, right? Yeah. So with them winning oh. shows like this it's it's almost like titling a dog. So it makes the babies more valuable. So they you know, the babies on these will sell from anywhere from fifteen hundred to Three or four thousand dollars.
1: Whoo, wow. Wow, that's pretty good. But it 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 is something
0: for the kids to do every day. We do it as a family. We feed, we water, we change pens, and it's you don't know how many people I have told you're saying. You know how you spell love? T I M E, and it is no more Mm -hmm. truth. In that saying, in and, and being a parent, that, that is a valuable, wise statement.
1: Yeah, and working together like that teaches value. You know, I mean, Rocky, let me ask you this. What, the goat that won, for example, what happens to her? She just becomes a breeding goat now? Or does she, she end up butterfly right. on the grill? Okay. No,
0: no, no, no. She, she'll be bred and have babies, and people will search out to uh for her babies in the next couple of years when they're
1: born. Because they she is a Yeah. Yep. That's good, man. I'm proud for y'all, Rocky. But we had a uh I and I had a good visit. We we really did. Uh, we got back a little bit onto his story and uh, how he ended up moving back to Saint Louis and, and uh some different stuff like that. We talked about Mo Marsh. And um and I know if we had talked about why or how he had come up with that boat, I had completely forgotten. So we revisited that. We talked about that a good bit and uh, where he was hunting, how he was hunting, that that they needed. You know, what existed or what was on the market then for um, what they wanted better and what they thought they wanted that they did because they got wet and sunken boats. and. Uh, how they continue to innovate and improve. And then we started talking about some other products, you know, uh, the Mo Marsh line, how they started to scale out. But, you know, Ira is such knowledgeable and, uh, I think you said the word renaissance man one time. There's so many disciplines, so many things he you knows so much about, and he is a vet. We, <laughs> we got to talk about, uh, neoprene vest and 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 uh, dogs getting wet and cold and I think we ended up talking a lot about hypothermia. You know, uh, which is a which is a pretty serious deal for dogs and for um, duck hunters. You know, and but but it's a real real good bit and uh,
0: real real entertaining,
1: the... real entertaining, real so,
0: entertaining. So you so you did you saved the part of. Because we're about to get into the part about um, with Tony and Habitat
1: Flat. That's it. We're right there, but we 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 we. That's kind of sort of like like he alluded to towards the end. You know, we're we're on the timeline now to where that's right about the time that he and 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 the Habitat Flat boys. This we're right there, we're right there. That's where. That's where it starts. Right here. You know, That's there was right. a lot
0: of people that did not know that that Ira was one of the owners of Habitat Flats until we started this podcast. I've had a few people say, hey, man, I didn't even know that he was one of the owners of Habitat Flats. Right. And yeah. Him him, and his brother, uh, Aaron, are both owners. And then I can't remember the other gentleman's name and then Tony.
1: There's yeah, four, I can't, can't remember what name. I knew the three of them. I still don't know the fourth guy's name. And, uh, no, yeah, I think Cho said it one time about, you know, I just kind of a, uh, you know, he's not the lead singer, He's not the front guy. You know, he, he's just comfortable, uh, playing rhythm, guitar, bass or something in the back, you know. And, uh, but, but he's anything but silent partner. I, that, that's my understanding. I, mean, I can guarantee you that he, he's way too smart. And um have
0: you ever <laughs> let me ask you this, seriously, from from a guy that knows the guiding world and, and outfitters better than anybody, have you ever seen a outfitter and don't get me wrong, they kill a lot of stuff, but have you ever seen one that is able to market
1: no. online as well as they do? No. No, and it's, it, but it's not just that. It, they, they, they market themselves very, very well. <clears throat> but I have used Habitat Flats in so many discussions. I've used that name, Habitat Flats, to so many new or aspiring guides, duck guides. You know, you talk to the average average guy that wants to get into the business or is in the business and wants to grow, you know, <clears throat> well, what's your competitive market advantage? You might ask them. Do more for less, they probably say. That's their idea of being competitive, is deliver great service for a lot less. More for less. That sound familiar? Well, that's Walmart's competitive advantage. In my opinion, that's not the way necessarily to brand duck hunt. If you want people to travel from around the world or from throughout the United States of America, people that can hunt anywhere they want to come to your lodge, that's not, that's not really a good strategy. And, and from outside looking in, watching Habitat Flats, that's those days. Um, you know, they, they built that business the old fashioned way. Which is not to say they limit on duck every single day. The duck hunting's duck hunting, anywhere. But they do put in a lot of work on the habitat. They 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 do put in a lot of work uh, with client services. But you know they they define yes. their business as simply be the best. And I really truly, um, for a commercial operation, I I revere Habitat Flats as the Standard, the gold standard of outfit and service. I, I that's oh, just I agree. Just my that's my impression of them. You know, and and and, and you know, I say this too. Um, just consider, if you will, um, who, um, if you're running a a, a top notch business, it's likely that your clients are going to be ten percenters, right? Probably right. CEOs, busy people. And then you've got, you know, a very successful business people. Tony, very successful in business. Ira and his brother, very successful. Veterinarians, entrepreneurs, guiding them. Think about that. That 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 in and of itself speaks a lot of volumes. You know, they organize it. They know what they want, and setting that standard. And but I, but I really do believe that Habitat Flats is the gold standard. To certainly the Mississippi Flyway, probably the whole country.
0: You know, oh, there, there's a really
1: nice club out there, no doubt. But they're they're really good.
0: You know, the thing that surprises me is whenever you talk to Ira about Habitat Flats and Tony, and I, I'm lucky enough to spend a couple of days up there with Tony. But you know. From the videos that you see, let me back up. From the videos that you see, you see a man in Tony that he's a conservationist. He, you see him doing a lot of labor. But one of the first things that always, always comes out of Ira's mouth when you bring up Tony, is, man, he is smart. Oh, yeah. Unbelievably smart.
1: Sure, he's smart. He's smart and hardworking. You know, he he really is, and, and I I think I think I think that I think that whole bunch deserves all the success they they've made for themselves. They weren't none of none of them were given anything; they just made right. it. You know and that 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 alone um, commands a lot of respect in my book. They weren't none of them were born on third base. None of them. They just they just they had a vision, and they had they dedicated themselves to it, and and they brought it to fruition. And, and uh, but anyway, they're they're all they're all great people, you know, great people. Oh yeah. Well, I know
0: that we are uh, running short on time, but we need to get to that interview with our now Ramsey. Be careful as you go out west, traveling out to to Utah. Be careful while you're out there. I know you got a couple of people that you're going to sit down with while you're out there. So have fun and be yes, careful. Sir and we will Rocky. talk to you soon. There we
1: go. How What's are up, you? Man? How are you doing today, Ira? I'm good, man. Big cold
2: front here. It's chilly. I actually got a jacket on and I'm running around like a chicken with my daddy got head cut off just like normal.
1: Every, every what? duck hunter, every duck hunter in, in my whole realm of sphere and social media is running around like a chicken with her head cut off or like a, like a rutting buck right now. Uh, fired up about this major cold front that, that just hit. I talked to a guy in Utah today that was telling me three days ago, ah, well, you know, and, and, and man, he's fired up right now about the cans and redheads and scoff that magically appeared Uh, with his, when his front hit Idaho, Montana. And, and I think everybody's fired up right now. Are y'all seeing anything? Oh, man.
2: Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, a bunch of teals showed up on the last one. I don't know what all showed up on this one. We got so much daggum water here, we can't even hardly get around, for goodness sakes. I mean, really? it's crazy. Oh, Teal. So much water. Yeah, heck, we're flooded again. Oh, I, I did not flooded know that. Last week for a week, and then the water got off for a day or two, and then got another daggum rain, and we're flooded again. So uh, that just creates... I mean, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. You save money on pumping. You get good water. Kind of, you know, jacks up your food a little bit. You can't do a a managed uh, addition to where you're, you know, just keep them on spoon feeding them, keep them on the tip the whole time, you know. Uh, you lay all your cards on the table right from the beginning, and there you go. But they call them waterfowl for a reason. that uh, You're better off having the water and not having it, for God's sake.
1: Well, you know, especially if you've got, especially if you've got some food and cover, because I, I, I just remember some research one time when they were uh, developing uh, know, aerial surveys, midwinter waterfowl counts, and everything else, and just all things equal, there are more ducks where there's more water on the landscape. But that, you know, the ducks are going to find it. It's going to attract them, like, from outer space. They can see it, and here they come. So, y'all may be in good luck. It's just you got to get up there and, and get out there to them. That could be a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, it'll it'll all get back down to where it's normal and manageable, I, I would assume. But, you know, there's all these conversations about, uh you know, flooded corn and this and that. and Why don't the ducks come south and all that stuff? I don't know how many people realize it, but, you know, last year there was so much water in the Missouri River Corridor. Um, man, there were there were just a lot of ducks that, you know, were in that northern Missouri, uh, Nebraska, Missouri River corridor that they just got no pressure, you know. I mean, they had miles and miles and miles and miles of habitat, and this year is way more significant. I mean, heck, all the way from the Dakotas, all the way down here, uh, there is just water everywhere. I mean, I, I don't know how many people you talked to that drove back from Canada down I-29, but, you know, it's just, and there's water all over. Those ducks are going to have a lot of places to be.
1: Well, it was a wet spring, a wet summer. Now it's going to be a wet fall. I know, I know uh, I'm know. i presently in Ontario, just got back from, you know, western Canada, and from, as best I can tell, from Ontario to Alberta, and then uh, the whole northern tier, Michigan over to North Dakota is ocean. I mean, it's 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 like unprecedented wet. It's wet, wet. I know. Now, and you know, in the Canada, of course, it's all spotty around. Some place dry, some place wet. But I'm just saying, uh, they're, they're behind on crops. Let me put it this way: all them states and places I just said are all behind on crops. They were late getting the crops in. Now they're late getting them out. Uh, and, and on top of that, the fields are wet, and and the seed is wet. You know, it uh, sounded to me. I talked right. to somebody today uh, about what's going on out in Saskatchewan, and, and he said, man, a lot of the farmers are just starting to swath fields, hoping that the 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 ground will dry out enough they can combine it because it's just wet and they can't make it dry. And, and they and, right. and, and they said and he said that's turned into a disaster, made the geese hard to hunt because, whew, man, they are they are swarming those uh, swath fields. But but right. this cold, this is real winter coming. This is we, real winter, a uh, real good front fixing to hit. That it, that uh, got me, and it's a full moon. So you know, it's just it may be that year, maybe that year that that a lot of these birds just say, man, it's time to fly south. Let's just fly south early, take an early vacation.
2: You know, they've been early the last two years. I mean, we'll see what happens this year, but I sure wouldn't be surprised if they aren't early again. I mean, they've been significantly early to us in Missouri the last two seasons. Um, That's good. So it's made for some That's great good. November hunting, but you haven't for a long time. Yeah, well,
1: if you don't turn them loose this year, Ira, I'm just going to come up there and see you. Well, i got to yeah, so. see my they, dog. They, 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 if they don't come down to Mississippi, I may just have to come to Missouri.
2: <laughs> we'll do it
1: yeah we'll do it oh lordy well well where did where did we we've had some great conversations the last few weeks but where did where did we even leave off with the the hour story pick 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 a spot on the map throw it throw a dart throw a dart at the timeline and take off man i mean you, you got such a fascinating story it'll 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 be fun no matter where it lands i think i think I think
2: we were talking about like the snow goose stuff in the in the late 90s weren't we Yes,
1: now that, you, now that you say that, we sure were. We are talking about the snow goo. We were talking about the late nineties and, uh, one of the last topics I remember was, uh, how, how property access was pretty darn easy. Now you could still knock on doors and, and then with the advent of, uh, spinning wing decoys and you, you could take a, a marginal area and make it accessible and the landowners just started getting their doors pounded on so much that access changed. Buddy, I
2: tell you what, you you aren't going to go knock on
1: many of those doors down there anymore
2: and, and get permission. That's for sure. Not in that, and, not in that I really I'm don't
1: remember. About. I really don't remember any time. Uh, I really don't remember much in, in Mississippi. Uh, is that being just a habit that far south? It, it, it's just, private property is just like one of the pillars of the. America or something, private property is just, is just ingrained so deeply in the South that, that I just, it's very rare you could go knock on the door. I mean, maybe go walk out there and shoot some squirrels when you were kids or something like that, but right. nothing like waterfowl. Nothing like that, that I remember. You know what I'm saying? Right. You had to have an end with it. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I was discussing this, you know, North Dakota is just, it just it, it's one of those few places and we, you know, like we were talking about Saskatchewan, It's just doesn't it blow your mind that where we all come from, further down the flyaway, that there's still somewhere like Saskatchewan that you can just see a bunch of birds drive up, knock on a door, and have a pretty darn good chance of getting access. That's, that's crazy. Ch- that's changing yep. too. I-, I guarantee you it that, uh, is our kids will be our kids will be on a podcast saying they remember the good old days when you could do that. I don't think it's gonna be long coming for that ends too. Yeah, and it depends on where
2: you go. Um you know, some places are are still, I'm sure, pretty easy in. And- some places are dang sure not very easy anymore. So, what,
1: what yeah. happened? Uh, uh, what, what happened on your timeline after you know there in the late nineties uh, with the snow geese and and all that good stuff, buzzing? what what where'd Ira go then? Uh, where'd I go as far as where was I hunting? Well, uh. I mean, what 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 became of Ira McCauley? after the late nineties, that's just where on the timeline did you, did, 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 uh, did which, which direction did you go then?
2: Well, there were lots of things that were changing, you know, at that point in time, I was living in Kansas city, um, working at the emergency clinic all night and, and doing relief work during the day. So basically like being a substitute veterinarian, you know, if someone needed some help or whatever. So I was working around the clock except for, uh, when hunting season rolled around and then I'd just quit all my, all my daytime stuff. And so I hunted a whole bunch and, uh, I was planning on staying in Kansas city. And, uh, in fact, I'd done a big demographic study for, you know, like where I should be, where I wanted to look at either buying an existing practice or hanging out my shingle and, and, you know, starting a new practice. And, uh, so that's what was kind of going on on the veterinary side. And then on the MoMar side, uh, you know, we, and when I say we, I, I had some high school kids and different kids that helped me and, and uh, also a fiberglass repair shop that helped me build boats. And so, you know, we were building uh, MoMarsh boats. And about that time uh, was when I made my first non- Boat item, first uh, metal cut and sew fab, or a uh, metal cut and sew type product that was called the Invisalounge. So we still make them up to this day. Um, there, was a, there was a little company called Action Products in Odessa, Missouri, and they made an open cell kind of product that was similar to the Invisalounge we have today. But, you know, heck, we'd use those open cell sheets. They were uh, five position ratcheting seats or layout chair type deal man you put one in your duck boat and i mean at the end of the hunt that thing weighs 75 pounds full of water you know and so i called them several times and asked them to uh make one out of closed cell foam and they were they had no interest in that and they they ended up going out of business but uh anyway that was kind of the first item that that i sourced uh a buddy of mine, and um, so that was the first non-boat item that Momar's had, uh, and that would have been oh man, back in the would have been back right around 99, something like that, maybe 2000. Um, so that's kind of what was going on on the Momar's side.
1: Maybe maybe I maybe I missed it or something, I or, or, or uh, maybe I missed it or, or just, just don't remember, which is very possible this day and age, uh, getting older, but what, what what kind of uh, what kind of habitat were you hunting and and what did the Momar's boat bring to the table in terms of design and, and efficiency you know cause, cause obviously there was a need a personal need right and and to and, uh, make you a better duck hunter I'm thinking you know that that's kind of how you got involved with the boat deal is that right
2: well yeah I mean you know there was uh, um, I was hunting a lot of public ground. So here in Missouri, we have a lot of public access that's unimproved. So, you know, they basically like WRP tracks, but there's no blinds or maybe they'd be ag units, you know, but there's no blinds or anything there. So you draw a pill, you kind of get an area that you're assigned to, and then you just go and figure it out. You know, you bring your own whatever, either you sit on a bucket and, you know, hunker down or take a knee or. Or, or whatever, but you know it um, back then, I didn't have a John boat, I didn't have anything, and so you know there was there were several people in Missouri that were building layout boats that uh that were mainly wooden and they kind of originated in Iowa and uh so you know you throw all your stuff in in your boat and you use your boat as a tool to get yourself and your dog and all your gear from you're put in to wherever you were going to hunt. You throw all your stuff out, and then you grass your boat up, so then it's your your hide, and you're comfortable, and instead of staring at the water trying for the ducks not to see your face, you're laying there, you know, looking up and enjoying the whole show. And uh, so it just brought a whole lot more enjoyment to your hunt, you know what I mean?
1: Sure. Yeah, but
2: those uh, those wooden boats were heavy. I mean, you know, they're probably hundred hundred eighty <laughs> pounds. The
1: oh, yeah,
2: they're pain in the butt to get around, you know, and they only only lasted so long and all that. So fiberglass saved you a whole bunch of weight, and uh, and it was durable and all that. So uh, we and and Four Rivers, you know, there were, it was basically us and Four Rivers um, started building that style of marsh boat out of fiberglass, and uh, and then we came up with a slick little blind system for them, you know, and and something that looked good and functioned well and and had a low profile, basically just built the layout line on top of the boats. And so, you know, that was a little bit of a game changer in our little world. And so it was just a real slick, easy-to-use, seamless package, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And right perf- about
2: perf- then, perf- then is, perf- it, for right about then is when, to- yeah, and right around then is when, uh, you know, mud motors started getting more popular outside of just southwest Louisiana, you know, and and Louisiana in general. And they started making ones that were appropriately sized that you could put on a little boat like that, you know. And so once you could combine one of those marsh boats with a long-tailed mud motor, man, you know, all of a sudden, not being able to get to places that were difficult to get to, you could go anywhere, you know what I mean. And so they were uh, just a really effective tool.
1: When you think back all those years ago... I can just imagine, man, I've hunted those kind of areas, and you carry everything but the kitchen sink that you need, and you're walking, you know, and it's just a, boy, you're glad, you know, good thing you were young and uh, could could do that kind of stuff, And but, but when you think back to y'all first laying out and designing that boat, and did it, did it start off making it for yourself, or, or did you go into the project thinking, hey, this is this, this i got a eureka moment this this could be a big deal
2: oh no it was definitely just uh making it for ourselves yeah i mean we went yeah. through several different um generations of boats before we got finally got something that we were like okay you know maybe maybe we'd sell this to someone and not be too ashamed of it you know what i mean
1: yeah,
0: because I that, think we you
2: know, kind of talked it's, about this last time, but there was no internet. It's not like you could just go and you know you had to go to the daggum right. Library to learn anything. Um, yeah, that. So that's we didn't just start off making right a. Yeah. yeah, we didn't start off making a turnkey product. That's for dang sure.
1: So so many people you talk to, yeah, you know, I, I talked to Brannis Ricky Ricky last week or week before, you know, and, and it's like, uh, boss yacht shells blows up, but, but it's it's it you know just I mean becomes this. <laughs> phenomena but but it started off with him just on his dad's old press just trying to make a better ammo solution for his son to shoot small right. bore guns. That, that it just it just started like that. And then one thing led to another. Get dot com just, just literally started it as trying to you know send a few hundred up there to Alberta. And and I job right. just you know, I, I talked to a callmaker, Ryan uh Ryan Reynolds up here in Ontario this afternoon and it's like he was a kid that locked himself in a room till he knew how to blew a goose goose call and then just to kinda of up his game thinking, Man, how cool would it be to just to to make a call just one call that I could actually make myself and interact and talk to these geese instead of buying a store bought and one thing led to another and he became I mean kind kind of the rich in tone of, of Canada, the only uh really mainstream Canadian-made Canadian call, you know. I thought, I thought that was curious. Uh, y'all y'all just started off to play a better game. That's I it. And I better,
2: mean, you? yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, Habitat Flats kind of started that same way too, and, of course, we'll get into that. But uh, the only thing that really was like a, a planned deal, of course, was being a veterinarian. I mean, you know, but the rest of it all, you just start off, with the need and doing what you love and, or,
1: or problem. And then, you know, hell, all
2: of a sudden it's like, oh man, what have we done?
1: I so, When, 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 what was your, what was the moment uh, during the process that y'all were building that boat that, that something just snapped or clicked or fell into place where, wow, this, this is what, what happened? I mean, what somebody wanted to buy you? are sitting at a cafe and somebody come out and say, Hey man, where'd you get that boat?
2: Um, no i mean so we started off building them really small you know we're thinking okay we need a really small boat so that we can um you know be as invisible as possible well it didn't take us very long to figure out that that was not a good idea i mean you know the boat needs to be big enough to be safe and uh it needs to be big enough that you're you're big fat ass in hanging out of it. You know what I mean. So
1: <laughs> yeah. we started
2: off making really little ones, and man, I mean, we're thinking them and all that, and that's the reason I called Fat Boy. Yeah, but it was I, I was like, well, God dang, what are we thinking? I mean, we're basically building a glorified surfboard, and then you know, I'm laying on top of this deal. I got <laughs> I'm hanging out all over the place, you know, and so <clears throat> ended up making a bigger boat that you could actually have room to blow your call inside the blind and be hidden inside the blind with your gun and have everything inside of it and um that was probably the biggest thing for me that uh when i was like okay now we're on to something because we've got something that's safe and comfortable and you know it's easy to conceal it's bigger but it looks better it hides better um because it is a little bit bigger and uh You know, but it was just, the boats are so cool, and they still are today. I mean, they're still a great tool, even though we have all kinds of other tools now. But, I mean, you know, if you're, let's say you go to wherever, North Dakota, Canada, wherever you're going hunting, and you've got, you know, you want to hunt water. Um, And remember, back then, that was all you could hunt was water, because there weren't any spinners. I mean, people goose hunted in the fields, but there was nobody Nobody duck hunting in the field, you know what I mean? Unless you're shooting mm-hmm. ducks over a honker spread or a snow goose spread or whatever. And uh, so, you know, heck, for several years we went to North Dakota and we'd put our boats in on some of those bigger, you know, bodies of water. And heck, we might go five, six, seven miles, you know, with our mud motors where from where we could have public access to where we were going to hunt. And, uh, man, you know, you get there and you throw your stuff out and shut your doors. And, man, we just had some awesome adventures doing that. Not just the hunting, but, I mean, it was just so cool to, you know, be on the water and see all that neat stuff out there, you know. It was just a whole lot of fun. It was just a cool experience. So. And here in Missouri, okay. I'd, say, I'd say a lot. I mean, there's still a lot of people that hunt out of layout boats on our public lands here. Oh yeah,
0: and and
1: it's not like we're not we're not talking layout boats like wide open water. Are we? We're talking cover, big tracts are covered with. We say WRP in Mississippi. That that's usually uh, ten to twenty year old hardwood plantations. In Missouri, you have got a lot of grassland type stuff, don't you? Yeah,
2: it'd be mainly moist soil units. Yeah, moist soil units Mm -hmm. for the most part. So, but no, uh, a true layout boat is is big open water boat for hunting divers that's painted gray or whatever you know but we we call them layout boats here but truly they're really more marsh boats technically mm-hmm.
1: marsh boats yep yep
2: and uh Playing so a you know way. there's uh a lot of the early ones were were what we call double enders so you didn't have a transom on them you know it was kind of tapered on each end but they still had a pretty flat bottom with a with a pretty flat chine and they were really made for poling, so that's how everybody got around was with a push pole. It didn't paddle real great um and so you'd stand on one end and you'd put all you know most of your weight on the other end, and then you'd just take off from wherever you could you got started and you'd use a push pole to get from point a to point b and uh that was how you got around and really, even when we first started making our boats, that's how we got around unless we used a trolling motor because there just were not little mud motors at that point in time. And those little outboard motors, you know, most of them didn't have a clutch back then. So, you had a little cotter pin. Well, dude, if you blew that, you were dead in the water, you know. And, and they were pretty cruddy little cotter pins in those little three threes and, you know, maybe a, a 5 yeah, most of what, guys? So, I mean, you know, if you were out in the middle of nowhere and you blew that cotter pin and you didn't have a spare, you were done.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
2: But a layout boat, mm-hmm. using a push pole. and, of course, we got really good at poling. I remember I'll tell you a story. We were up in North Dakota one time, and it was one of those weird days where we had a wind fog. So most days that are foggy, there's no wind, right? Well, this day mm-hmm. there was like a there was like a twelve fifteen mile an hour breeze right off the bat, and I mean it was foggy as heck. And so we just had to go. We had maybe a five hundred yard pole or something like that across this cove to get to the other side where we were going to hunt. We'd scattered out the day before. But, I mean, you had to pull hard because uh, that wind was blowing hard. And uh, so I'm in the lead, and I got another buddy up behind me, and then the guy in the end, he's back there behind him. And uh, the last guy, his push pole broke about halfway across that cove, broken in half. And uh, this lake was about <laughs> you know, three-quarters of a mile wide. He had to float across the whole lake. You know, we got there. We were like, what happened to Chad? I don't know. He'll be here in a minute, I'm sure. He said (laughs) he sat there and listened to us shoot ducks (laughs) all morning long while he floated across that dugout lake. (laughs) Help! He couldn't see anything. Yeah. Right about the time we got done, you know, the fog was lifting right about the time, or it was pretty well out of there by the time we got back. And he'd walked all the way back to the trucks there. Yeah, he floated Hmm. across that lake all morning with a broke push pole. so that's That's that and then the the other thing i was hunting a lot back then i started hunting the the missouri river in 1998 and uh you know it it can be really good and it can be too high to be huntable and and uh Mm -hmm. you know i i had i had some i've had some great hunts on it when it's right through the years but it's one of those things where you got to kind of know what's happening you know it's definitely not something you just want to show up for and that's your only plan
1: no, 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 no. That, and, and, and I, about that same era, I was on the Mississippi River, just some of the backwater and stuff like that. And that's a, whew, that, that's a, that's a chore. It's work and it's dangerous. And, uh, yeah. boy, when it's right, it's, it's good. Boy, that was good back, back in those days. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I've been on that big son of a gun since, since I had kids. Something about having a kid and being a daddy, I just said, I don't think I'm going to hunt here anymore. It, it, it just, uh, too many, too many come to Jesus, uh, meetings out there on that river you know it's a whole those lot. big rivers
2: you know they tend to get really good when conditions are really tough so when it's cold mm-hmm. uh, you know those those ducks want to go to the river and uh we have a saying nothing's easy when it's 10 degrees i mean untying a knot in a rope, 10 degrees it, it's you're not going to get it you're going to use a pot of coffee you know and just everything mm-hmm. so much harder and more dangerous when it's that cold. And yeah, buddy, I had oh, boy. fear-raising experiences out there. Gotten hypothermia twice on on the on the river, uh, like where I passed out and was, you know, incoherent. So it can definitely it can be a dangerous place. That's for sure.
1: I, I don't recall really ever getting hypothermia. I, I do, except maybe uh, the closest I think I may have ever come of all places was Argentina this year. There was ice, and I had a hole. Way up in my waders, and I'd want no time how long that hole had been there. Just a hole where I'd sat on something, and you know, you know how it is when you, you know when you got a leak in your waders on a cold morning. You feel a little something at first; it don't feel wet, you just feel something. And you mm-hmm. stop and go, "I want to." Surely that's not a leak. And then ten minutes later, you realize, you know, you're leaking like a sieve. And my outfitter, my outfitter, told me that morning, I "Go, we we'll get back to the truck." I said, "I got to go." Said, well, I said, "No, I got to go now. I run the lodge out of hot water, trying to warm up."
0: Yeah, And later later at
1: lunch that day, he was saying, well, I knew you were cold because you were taking 100 yard shots trying to finish up the limit, you know. But anyway, I don't know if I've ever had just true hypothermia. You ever dealt with hypothermic dogs in your career?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, several times. Usually, you know, other people's dogs. um, Well, always been other people's dogs. But, uh, heck, Jimbo and I were hunting together. I don't know. Two, two or three years ago, and he had a vest on on his little dog Charlie there, and uh, man, she got all jacked up. We had to call the hunt and get her out of there. She was all messed up. And most of the time, when dogs are hypothermic, it's because they have a poor fitting vest, and they just can't get really? that water away from them. Yeah. So well, the vest well, can be good, you. but it can also cause it.
1: Well, I was, I was just I was just going to ask you. Uh, I was just going to ask you that question. You know, what were your thoughts? You live and die by wearing a vest because I've always I've worn them I've worn I put them on my dogs in the past, but now I just I don't even keep one. And uh, you know I don't I don't even keep one. I mean it's like because uh, it's so hard you know to find the right fitting vest. Yeah, and, and that's and right. It's, it seems like it is loose on one end or something like that. And then if you know where we hunt, there's a lot of brush. And uh, right. man, you know you get off that kind of crap that the dog really truly needs a heavy vest and she gets snagged up on some brush. What am I gonna do? It's six foot of water, yeah. and I'm, I walked in. What am I gonna do to get her off of it? You know. So, I, yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Would you would you recommend uh, just going through vests until you find the right one? Are They really that big an asset for a lab or a chassis. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on
2: vests. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about them and and working on them. Um, I, I don't hunt Sadie with a vest. I mean, she is tough as nails, and uh, she mm-hmm. hates the vest, and I've just never had a problem hunting her without a vest. And, I mean, I've hunted her in some brutal, brutal stuff. Um, I mean, times and places where I, I should, probably shouldn't have had her out there, but uh, the other thing to think about is that a dog, just like us, a dog's body shape and type changes throughout their lives, right? So when they're young... Man, they're thin, they got a they got a really skinny waist, you know, and a pretty good sized chest and, and they really like a gangly it down. teenager. Yeah, and then I mean just think about bucks, you know, you talk to guys that are big deer hunters and you're like, Well, how old's that deer? and they'll tell you, Well, it's three years old, or it's four years old, or it's five years old, or whatever just based on that buck's, you know, does it have a sway in its back, does it have a pop mm-hmm. belly, what's is its neck, you know, how thick's its neck? all that stuff. And so same thing happens with dogs. So really, you probably, you probably need a new vest for a dog. Oh man, you know, every two to three years, um, even didn't get real fat or it didn't get real skinny just because their body conformation changes as they age. So, um, yeah, man, it's not like you buy a, it's not like you buy a vest for your dog when it's one and it's going to last it its whole life. I mean, that just does not happen, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh shoot. This dog alright. Hold on Ramsey, what happened here? Uh Can you hear me alright?
1: Yeah, I I the audio changed a little bit. I, I thought it happened on my phone, but maybe in yours. No.
2: It did. I gotta take kid to a daggum football game here. Let me uh do that there, that should be better. Is that better?
1: Yeah, that's better.
2: Okay. So um, yeah, man, we we've got some cool vest stuff we've been working on. Um, I really think I think 2020 will have a vest that's unlike anything else that's out there. Um, Good deal. So keep your eyes open, but yeah. Uh, but I, I know one thing for sure. I know that a poor fitting vest is is can be worse when it's cold than no vest at all. Yeah. I've seen I've every dog I've ever seen down. get hypothermia has had a vest on.
1: Boy, Heidi, that that's that's a lot. That, that says a lot coming from you. It really does. And I and I, I know that that uh, you know the, the crazy thing is I raised Springer for a long time, which uh, a lab a lab is just a much much better uh, genetically equipped waterfowl dog than a Springer, especially when it's cold. But uh you know their skin gets wet unlike a lab. And and you know right. it, it was just uh, I I just saw that they did better hunting without a vest or the vest that were available at the time than than with a vest. You know they they just yeah, they, I mean, they you
2: know some dogs you know they when the vest is a good fit and you unzip that vest that dog should be pretty well dry underneath there and when you unzip the vest mm-hmm. there should be steam that comes off the dog. That's right. So the worst thing you can have is a dog that's that's thin. You know, having have too big a vest and then that water pools down there under their belly, and boy, that's a bad yeah. deal. They can't. There and it just snapped it's, it's to their, to their body.
1: Like a, oh, it's, it's supposed to function like a wetsuit, isn't it? It just warms that, that kind yeah. of water between those two layers. Yeah. 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 That 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 makes that makes good sense. And, uh, now but if both I'm times I got that,
2: hypothermia, I got wet both times both times the one time i ripped my waders picking up decoys on a piece of rebar or something and you know i was like i just started picking up and i was like all right i can man my way through it and uh i mean i was full to the top it was about 10 degrees and uh man oh man yeah man i mean those waders filled up and i started the boat i thought i was gonna drive I'm going wide open throttle down the Mississippi river and my whole world just went and I was out. I mean, black came in from the outside, and the world just disappeared right before my eyes. Luckily I, I I pulled the, the throttle back to new, you know, from wide open throttle to neutral before I hit the floor. And, uh, I had one guy with me and, uh, he, he drove the boat on back and got me in my truck. But boy, I mean, it was, that that was a, a surprise to me. And then the other time I tripped, I was picking up decoys. I was guiding a bunch of guys and, uh, I tripped picking up decoys in the current and there was no way to get my feet back underneath me without getting wet, you know? And, uh, so I got wet and again, it was super daggum cold. And, uh, same thing, man, I, I got in the boat and then one of them had to drive back and, you know, get me out of there and all that. But, boy you get wet when it's cold and uh and you know you've got ways to go to get back to a vehicle or somewhere where you can warm up that is a bad situation
1: what, what when going back to that time when you blacked out knowing what you know uh medically and biologically and all that stuff what what how long did you have would you say i mean that that was pretty severe exposure that you passed out I, you know where, where where were you at I well mean, i mean i think the worst and thing and take take a shot of hoops and recover i wouldn't think so i thought it took a while to, to warm back up or do you have to go to oh, the hospital or what
2: no i mean i just got all my clothes off and got the heater going and uh you know it takes takes a while i think i had some other other clothes in my truck but no i mean it takes you i don't know probably took an hour to wear i was back to feeling halfway normal but the the worst part though is that you're totally dysfunctional so you're gonna die if there's not somebody else around to help you you know what i mean so i remember i was hunting with some guys one time and one of my buddies was like man i am cold i've got to go back to the truck we were hunting some public ground and so we gave him the keys to the truck and he said i'm gonna go back to the truck start up warm up well he walked back to the truck well he was already having hypothermia and so hypothermia makes you you feel like you need to go to sleep. So he walked back to the truck. He couldn't, he, he was so cold, he couldn't unlock the truck. That was before we had, uh, you know, all the push button things, lock it with your button and the fobs or whatever. Mm-hmm. He had to stick the key in there and turn the key. Well, he couldn't get that done. He was too far gone. So he decided he was just going to lay down. You know, he was tired. He was going to lay down and take a nap next to the truck. And uh, so it had been like, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour and one of the other guys is like, you know, I'm kind of cold too. I'm It was slow, you know. I'm going to go back to the truck too and warm up. He goes back there and our buddy's laying there on the ground and he's purple, you know. So thank yeah, God he went right. back to check, you know, to warm up or hell, he could have died laying right there on the ground. Right outside Probably the truck. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, he was totally unconscious, you know. He had to get him up and get him warmed up and they did take him to the hospital, but yeah, I mean, you know, you just—it's hypothermia is nothing, to Jack. With that's for sure.
1: Now, now, how, how, how? I didn't mean to take your podcast off in this direction, but I'm very interested in this. What, what? what I know, I know. Uh, regular body temperature is around 98 degrees. What are you, what are you down around when you're technically hypothermic like that?
2: Man, you know, I would—I I honestly don't. I mean. I really don't know, but I'd say you'd have to be. Shoot, I'd think you'd be down in the mid to lower eighties, and colder than that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's all a sliding scale, but uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what temperature you like pass out or or whatever. You know, I'm sure they've done studies on that stuff. But
1: I had a I had a dog. I had a dog. We hunted him all day. What a great dog he was! old hunter and uh, a bunch of ducks. Stayed wet. At a little Springer. Stayed wet all day and and and. There towards the end of the hunt, he started acting goofy. I mean, like, he was out of it. And I ended up having to carry him about a half mile across the bean field on my shoulder to get him in the truck, Threw him on the heated floor. And he just wasn't coming around. I stopped by Mississippi State Veterinarian School. And, of course, you know, dealt with my first anti-hunter. And, boy, she an anti-hunter, yeah. man. I remember you talking about the veterinarians there, you know. And uh oh, yeah. the animal abuse. The animal, I, she probably oh, yeah. would have reported me or, or, or something, you know, this day and age. But uh, they ended up having to wrap that dog up in an electric blanket and run a warm IV through him. I mean, like, I think they microwaved uh, or somehow heated up some saline solution and put an IV to just get down to his core temperature. He was bad off. It, it, was, it was it was way on down there, you know? Yeah,
2: I mean, the problem, you know, at least all the all experiences I've had through the years, the problem is I'm always in the middle of nowhere when it happens, you know what I mean? And, uh I mean, luckily, mm-hmm. you've got a vehicle that's somewhere... That you can get to hopefully at some point, but you know, heck, there it's not like uh, there's really anything close. It's, it's real handy, you know what I mean?
0: Mm hmm. As far
1: yeah, as, well, as, far well, as physician care or anything. That's right. I mean, that's duck hunting, isn't it? Yeah? You no, know, I remember Walter, Walter Cronkite quoted one time that duck hunting was a perilous sport, especially for the yeah. ducks. <laughs>
2: but, yeah, but no anyway. doubt. I've seen that. It's awesome. <laughs> awesome.
1: Anyway, well, man, um, uh, where do we go from here?
2: Save oh, I mean, another I, guess,
1: podcast? Uh,
2: I mean, we can let's talk a little bit about uh how I ended up in St. Louis. So, yeah. not in St. Louis, but on this side of the state. So, I was over on the Kansas City side, and like I said, I'd done demographic studies and our plan was that my brother was going to move to Kansas City or that area we're going to you know do something over there and uh, man about that time my mom got breast cancer and my dad had uh, oh. he, he had a brain cancer deal and so uh, well hell, I'm just going to go back over there to St. Louis and uh, um we'll do something over there you know so that's how i ended up moving back over this way and uh and then we ended up my brother and i ended up uh we bought a little practice out in the country and then we built another one in town and uh so we still have those two two offices that we operate uh out of to to this day so i'm still on this side of the state and uh still doing veterinary medicine over here but that happened i moved and 2000 so you know all my duck hunting stuff was over there and still is really and uh, I moved over here and I was that that first couple years you know when I was really just trying to make ends meet uh I was like fish out of water I sure didn't do a whole lot of hunting that's for sure Mm -hmm. so but then that changed again not too far down the road you know um uh we bought we bought our first farm in 2005 so i'd been here for five years and uh that's really when the momentum started building for uh you know eventually what ended up becoming habitat flats over
1: time so how far how far in. is that from how far is that from the saint louis area uh, about three
2: hours I mean, I live on the western edge of St. Louis, so it's not quite that far for me. But uh, yeah, Sumner's about three hours away from St. Louis.
1: Yep. Well, sounds like next podcast we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get into some habitat flash discussion. Yeah, that
2: you know, there's still a, I mean, there's a couple main stories and veins to go through on the Momar's side, like. Uh, you know, just kind of lay, lay some direction out there for us. Uh, you know, so if we just kind of fast forwarded to 2012, 2013 is when I kind of started, you know, making all the non-boat items. So that's when I started making all the more popular types of items. So we need to, Talk about that at some point, and then we we need to talk about the the sale at some point, you know, and and what my role today is and that still, and then the have to have flat thing will take up a pretty good little amount of time, I'm sure.
1: We got all the time in the world, Iron. Yeah, I man. Rocky, give us Rocky, give us a little at a time, and I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But uh, yeah. Hey, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, take kids to the ball game, record. All right, buddy. I'll do it. Have a great day. Shoot some for me tomorrow. Oh, don't worry. I'll shoot the first one for you, Ira. thanks, sir. All right, buddy. Good talking to you.